0: Um, So I'm looking out, and I I know that there's some people that are are here that are, maybe it's your first time or you haven't been here in a few weeks, so let me just kind of catch you up with what we're doing. So we're working through a series in the book of Genesis, and so we've been working through the flood narrative for a handful of weeks now, and so uh, what you get at the very beginning of this story is sin has run rampant across earth, and God literally is at a place where he regrets having made creation because of how vast that sin has run rampant here on this world. And so he decides that he's going to judge sin on the world by sending a flood. And as this flood comes, he sees and he identifies Noah. There's grace that's been bestowed on Noah's life. And so Noah's walked with God. And so God comes to Noah and he says, and he gives a warning to what's about to happen, much like the ringing that's going on right now. Um, There's he gives warning to Noah that the flood is about to come, and so Noah, with the instruction of God, goes and he builds an ark, the flood waters come, earth is destroyed, and then God, last week, as we looked at it, God commands Noah to leave the boat, God, Noah doesn't leave the boat until he hears the instructions of God, and as he comes out, his first response is that he worships. He worships God out of thankfulness, but also out of repentance for the sin that has obviously already destroyed this world. And so he sees that inside of him, and he goes and he worships. And then that leads us to tonight's portion where Noah enters into this post-flood world, all right? So Noah's entering into this world, like we looked at last week, there would be a lot of either destruction or emptiness that Noah is exiting the boat out into this world. And so as Noah's doing this, um, what really happens if you think about other stories that are in similar nature to this, where there's like post-apocalyptic narratives that we have, or if there's like, Things like a Lord of the Flies, right? So if you have this, they're like, there's this, this catastrophe that's happened. What happens in these stories is that the characters get organized, right? So like, take the Lord of the Flies instance. You have this plane full of schoolboys that are exiting. They're fleeing the war that's happening. There's a crash that happens. They land on this deserted island. And whenever they land on the deserted island, what happens? the characters get organized, right? They identify a leader. They come up with rules. They devise an exit strategy for how to get off of the island. They get organized in what it looks like to really move forward, even in the midst of the catastrophe that's already happened. And that's what's going on here in Genesis chapter 9, is we're watching Noah exit the boat and enter into the post-flood world. And You see this like legislation that God is giving. It's not Noah that's getting the world organized, but it's actually God that's getting the world organized because you see God speak here at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 9. And so in verse 1, we see a similar command on Noah as as well as the rest of humanity Just like we saw in Genesis chapter one, they're to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so there's recalls back to the creation account that's happening here in Genesis chapter nine. And then you see some new things though that happen as Noah is entering into the post-flood world. So verse two, you see that there's fear injected into the animals of man. Apparently the animals were wilding out whenever uh, the world was going on before the flood. And so now God's looking at the sky the vast escape of what's taking place over humanity. And so he's looking into the new era that they're entering into and he injects fear into the animals. So what happened pre-flood doesn't happen post-flood. Then you see in verse three that God gives permission for barbecues because animals now can become food, all right? So once you get rid of all the blood, Animals are now your food. And so you see that in verse three, verse five, you see that there's now punishment for murder that happens. God instills capital punishment. There's a big view for the image of God across across all of humanity. And so if there's a life that is taken, blood is spilled, then the humanity is also to spill that person's blood because of how vast the image of God is in his view. And so you have all these new things that are happening but what stands out in this passage above all is that there's an introduction of covenants that takes place here in Genesis chapter nine. Genesis nine eleven says, I establish my covenant with you. So this is a really defining moment in the Bible. You actually see God kind of start this in Genesis chapter six, but it gets explicit here in Genesis chapter nine. And from here on out, as you look at the God of the Bible, he is recognized as a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And so it's really a defining moment of what's, what God is doing over the vast uh, work of the Scriptures here in Genesis chapter 9. And so as we're thinking about this, like I, I just wanna, here's where I want us to go. All right, Here's what I want to do, how I want to tease out Genesis chapter 9. I want to first just define what a covenant is. All right, I'll give you some understanding of why we'll do that. And then after we define what a covenant is, I want us to look at the covenant that God makes with Noah. So you're gonna know it. I'm gonna read it out. I'll probably have you state it out as we are moving forward. And then at the end of this, we'll look at the sign of the covenant that God gives us in Genesis chapter nine. All are really important, all are really significant. And I believe that God's gonna meet us in each of these different spheres. All right, so let's begin with what a covenant is. Let's begin by kind of defining our terms before we dive into really the whole context that's happening here. So we need to define covenant. For two reasons. Because one, it's important, all right? You see covenants all throughout the scriptures, and so we need to understand what exactly is a covenant. But you also have a lot of confusion with what we think of covenant versus what the Bible speaks in terms of a covenant, all right? So here's a couple of differences. We, we view a uh, covenant a lot like a A contract, but there's very stark differences between the two if you look at what covenant really means in the Bible. So here's a couple of them that I I try to put forth for us so that we can have a little bit of clarity in terms of the difference. So a contract is an agreement, but a covenant is a pledge, all right? A contract is an agreement, but a covenant is a pledge. Now, here's what I mean by that. A contract is an agreement where you exchange goods for the benefit of both parties, right? We we get this. So if you've ever had like a rental agreement, um, this is kind of what you get at the end of this, right? So a rental agreement, you get a place to live and your landlord gets your money. You see the exchange of both. Like you get a place to live where you can kind of like have shelter over your head, but in exchange for that good, the landlord gets your money. Like they get a va- they get a big bank account. And so um, what happens here is like you these these contracts. They can be terminated, right? We, we all get this whenever you enter into a rental agreement. They either have an expiration date, so it's a preventative measure in case, like, it's not working out for both parties. There's something that's instilled in the contract that each party can get out of it at some point in time. Or these contracts can be broken. So if one party does not live up to their side of the agreement, then the other one can opt out of it, right? Well, a covenant is different. Whenever you look at the Bible, covenants are different from what you see in terms of a contract. A covenant is a pledge that gives yourself to something or to someone. So you're giving a pledge or you're giving a promise where you're committing yourself to a person or a priority. So a covenant's not just this exchange of mutual benefit. It's a lifelong promise that you're giving. You're saying, I bind myself to you. And then it's a, con, a covenant is also, it's not always mutually uh, beneficial. Oftentimes, it's very sacrificial, right? Like, so like if you think about like the best example you can have of the idea of a covenant is like the marriage um, covenant that we have here in this world, all right? So whenever you stand up and you're giving your wedding vows, you're not giving a contract, right? You're not standing before a public audience saying, if I do the dishes, then you'll do the cooking, right? That's not what you're doing as you stand before. No, you're, you're giving vows. You're making pledges to one another. You're saying to the person that you're about to enter into this covenant relationship. Here's how I'm giving myself to you. Here's the things that I how I view this relationship, the the importance of it. And as we move forward together, here are the pledges, here are the promises that I make to you as we start this new life together. That's what a covenant is, all right? Secondly, when it comes a contract versus a covenant, a contract comes with a signature, but a covenant comes with a sign. A contract comes with a signature, but a covenant comes with a sign. So you sign a contract so you can hold someone responsible for their end of the agreement, right? So you want to make sure that you, when you sign it, you build this contract and there's mutual benefit that's happening. You want to make sure that you're putting things into place, that you can hold someone responsible for their side of the agreement. Now, when it comes to a covenant, you, instead of a signature that's signing something and saying, I'm going to hold my end of the bargain, you, ca- you have a sign that actually symbolizes the relationship that you're entering into, all right? So take the, the wedding example again. We have a symbol for a wedding vow that we have on our finger, right? Whenever you stand up you give a commitment to one another, you make a covenant to one another, and you have a sign of that, which is the ring that is placed on the finger. And so this ring tries to put a, picture into, uh, put a picture before you and your spouse as, rel- as well as other people, the rest of the world, of uh, what is the commitment that's being made to one another, the covenant that's being made. And so here's a, I have on the screen, uh, oftentimes the wedding vows, the ring vows that we say to one another. So with this ring. You can say this out loud if you, if you know it by heart. I thee wed to have and to hold, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. So what you have in this symbol of the ring is like you have this faithfulness as well as the sacrifice that's being modeled in this picture of the ring that is the sign of the wedding covenant, right? So it's a, it's a circle. It has this never ending agreement. It's till death does us part. I will hold fast of this covenant, this vow, this pledge that I'm being, that's being made to you as your wedding partner that I am going to hold to this covenant relationship. I'm going to give myself to this relationship until I take my final breath here. And I'm not doing it because of mutual benefit that's taking place in this marital relationship, even though we hope that there's a lot of love and shared interest that takes place in the marital relationship, because we look in the vows and it's like, till richer or poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. Like you're making these teens, there's oftentimes in a wedding relationship, the wedding covenant that one end of the party doesn't hold up to the 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 other side that's being made right so if there's sickness or if there's disease or if there's something of that nature that hurts one of those that are in the marital relationship you're not just like bowing out because there's not a mutual benefit or exchange that's now taking place no you've committed yourself to this person you know like Till death does us part, even if you're sick, I'm gonna walk with you through all that. Even though you can't carry your end of the bargain in terms of what's happening in the house or carrying the load with the kids or helping bring in the financial security to the home. If something happens in your life, I'm still committed to you sacrificially to where we're gonna move forward. You see what I'm saying? And this ring is a sign of that to you, to your spouse, into a watching world. And so as you think on these differences between contract and covenant, covenant is a promise. It's this lifelong promise that is made to the other party. And then you have a sign that gives a picture of what the commitment that's being made to you, the other party, and the rest of the world. Well, that's what's happening here in Genesis chapter nine. In Genesis chapter nine, we get... God's covenant that he's making with Noah. He's making a pledge to Noah as well as the rest of creation. And then as he's making this pledge, he's also providing a sign of the covenant that we can look to it for some very particular reasons that we'll dive in here in a moment. All right. So let's go to now. Everybody feel good? You feel good? I'll like know the difference between contract and covenant? Good. Awesome. Let's move forward. So the covenant that God makes with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, we see it in verse 11, says this, I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never, there will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. So what's the covenant that God's making? Speak to me. Awesome. <laughs> he won't flood the earth again, Right? He's making this pledge. Hey, what has happened here, Noah? I'm not going to do this again. I'm making my pledge to you. I'm making a covenant to you that this flood that has destroyed all of humanity, destroyed every creature that has destroyed creation, I'm not going to do this again. He's bringing this promise that he's placing before Noah. Now, there's a lot of things that you can kind of pull and extract out of this covenant, right? Like there's a lot of things that you can get. You can get into environmental things. You can go a lot of different ways. I think there's three important ones that I want to draw out for us, though, because I think they are really pertinent to the rest of the Bible. If you look at the covenants that God makes, because there's a long string of covenants that he makes after this, a lot of them, you see a lot of the, the qualities that take place in this covenant that he makes with Noah are found in the coming covenant. Uh, covenants that he's about to make with other uh, beings in this world, all right? So here's the three, all right? The first one is that God initiates. The second is that God commits. And then the third one is that God warns, all right? God initiates, God commits, and God warns. We see that God initiates in verses 9 and 11. So look, I, I tried to italicize some things. Hopefully they show up on the screen here. So if you look at verse 9, God says, I understand that I am establishing my covenant with you. Then you go to verse 11. I establish my covenant with you. So who's initiating here? God's the one that's initiating. So here's what's not happening, all right? So Noah doesn't exit the, the boat and then go into the post-flood world and then see all that has happened and then come to God and be like, hey, um, God, uh, so as I see how everything unfolded here. Um, this was pretty bad. And, you know, like, I don't want to see this happen again. And so um, is there a way that we can, like, devise something here to make sure that what has just happened with all this flood stuff doesn't happen again? And if you could, could we, like, make this, like, a lifelong, like, eternity-long pledge that you hold on to your end of the bargain and, we like, we just don't see this happen again? That's not, what, that's not what's going on here right? Noah doesn't speak. What God does is he initiates with Noah. He knows exactly what's gone down, and he looks at the expanse of it. His heart is moved, and he initiates with Noah, and he's the one that initiates this covenant relationship. Now, this is really important to the rest of the Bible because this is God's pattern with humanity that you see throughout the rest of Scripture. It's not Not humanity that comes to God and initiates with God. It's actually quite the reverse. God is the one that always initiates with humanity. So you look at the covenants that come after this with Noah. You see it, I mean, you can make an argument that there was a covenant that was made with Adam and Eve in the garden, that there was a promise of the coming one, but you don't have the covenant wording that's used there. But God initiates with Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall, doesn't he? He's already shown that this is his pattern by the way he identifies and he addresses Adam and Eve post-sin. Then you see this with the flood. God initiates Noah, both before the flood and then after the flood with the covenant. And then if you want to fast forward all the way, we see that God in the climax of any and all covenants initiates with us by sending Jesus. We aren't the ones that come to God and be like, God, this world is a wreck. Can you come and do something about it? God is the one that initiates and the very person of Jesus coming into this world. So this is his pattern with us, and you see it here in Genesis chapter 9. We need to see from the very beginning pages that God's pattern of this world, the way that he works in this world, the way that he works with you and me, is he's always the one that takes the first step. Second one, God commits all right so we see this again if you're gonna if you want to run back to um those same two verses verse 9 says understand and hopefully there's somebody tell us okay yeah understand that I am what establishing my covenant with you verse 11 what does it say I establish my covenant with you. So whenever God comes and initiates with Noah, he's not, this isn't like a hitch situation, Albert Brenneman that's coming to hitch, right? It's not like a God comes 90 and we come 10. No, this is God full commitment to us, right? Like God is the one that's stepping towards us. He's the one that's making the commitment to us. And he's the one that is ultimately gonna bring this thing together, right? Like this is all God. God's making the commitment, not does he just initiate with us, but then he also makes a commitment. He is saying, I'm binding myself to you. I'm binding myself to creation. I'm doing all of the work that is happening here in this covenant. I am not only the one that initiates, but I'm going to be the one that sustains. I'm going to be the one that commits. I'm the one that is going to bring this to fruition. And then thirdly, we see that God warns, all right? Look at verse 11 with me. It says this, I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters, all right? Notice the particularities that are happening here. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth, all right? So here's what is happening here. God is making a promise that he will never flood again. God's not making a promise that he will never judge again. You see that? He's very specific of what he's saying. And if you look at the New Testament, if you look post-Jesus and post-Jesus in the Bible, you actually see that the Bible uses the flood narrative as a warning for the coming judgment. All right? So if you look at the Apostle Peter, he wrote a couple of letters. And in his letters, he uses the flood foreshadowing the, come, the coming judgment. Not that will happen by water, but by, will happen by fire all right? Then you also see in the apostle Peter that he uses the ark to foreshadow the coming salvation that's going to be in Christ Jesus at the final judgment. And then if you even step further back, you look at Jesus. Jesus uses the flood narrative, and what the way that he uses it is he says that the the coming judgment will actually fall upon people just as the flood fell on people, which was unexpected, all right? So Jesus says that people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. If you look at what happens in the flood narrative, people did not see this coming. Even though you have Noah that's gone and placed this before people, he's preach this to people. He's been building the ark for 120 years. People, it still hits them as if they did not understand that this was going to come about. Jesus says, it's going to be the same way with the coming judgment. Matthew 24, verse 39 says, they didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be, speaking of his second coming. So it's a warning to us. But this warning, this flood narrative should show us the urgency with which the gospel message contains, all right? The gospel message has great urgency to it. If we look at the character of God, if you look out at the vast expanse of all of scripture, you see that God does not desire to judge people. In fact, he longs to save people. The, The verse that Every single one of us should probably pop in our mind. This is John 3.16. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, not that many would perish, but that they would have everlasting life, right? It's not God's desire that judgment would come down on people. God's desire is that he would save people. Now, here's the thing about this, though. God is the one that he, we are the communicators of this gospel message to a watching world. It's what you see in 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, you see that we are those that make the appeal. God makes his appeal through us, all right? So here's what 520 says. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, the beauty of this is that whenever we go and we make this proclamation, we preach and we share this good news, in the urgency of this gospel message, the promise is that some will respond, that when we go and we share this warning with a world of the coming judgment of sin, that God will save some because he's promised that he will do so. So if you, if you step back and you look at this covenant, all right, like it's really important to us. It, it lays the foundation for a lot of what God's going to do throughout, the, throughout human history here with this particular covenant. But we see in the aspect of the rest of the covenants that God initiates, that God commits, and that God warns. These are all really important for us as we look at the rest of Scripture. So God gives us this covenant. He gives Noah this covenant. But after he gives the covenant, he also gives a sign, all right? And we see this in Genesis 9, 12 through 13. Here's what it says. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all future generations. Here it is. I have placed my bow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So what's the sign of the the covenant? Speak to me. The rainbow. Now, what's unique about this is like the word for bow and rainbow, there's not a different word for it in the Bible. So bow is like the warrior's um, use of the idea of a bow, like a bow and an arrow. God is saying, I'm hanging up my warrior weapon that I've used against the world and I will not come back to it again. That's the covenant that he's making. It's this sign that he's placing before us that's the symbol of the covenant that he's made with Noah. Now, like the wedding ring, the rainbow communicates a couple of things to us about this covenant relationship that he's entered into with Noah, as well as you and me and the rest of creation. And so I think these are really important for us to wrestle with because as we look at the rainbow, like these are things that God should be stirring inside of you, right? I know the rainbow is used for a lot of different things, but this is what ultimately in those that have trusted in Christ, these are the things that should stir and resonate in our hearts, all right? So the first one is this. Here's what this rainbow, this sign of the covenant should communicate to us. First, it represents God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. We see this in verses 13 through 15. So he places the bow in the clouds. There'll be a sign of the covenant whenever he forms clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds. Look at this. I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. So remember here, if you remember back a few weeks, we talked about this word remember and what it means in the Bible. This word remember is not a mental recall. For us, it's like we have to remember things that have happened in our past. And so it's just like this thing that comes over us is like this mental recall that we remember, either promises that we made or commitments that we've made. It's this mental recall that hits us. But for God in the Bible, it's actually a term of covenant faithfulness. So whenever God sees the rainbow, he says, I follow through with my promises he looks at it, and he's being reminded. He's being—it's uh, he, jogging his memory of the the faithfulness to his covenant. It's not something I need to do this, and I've forgotten about it. But it's—I look at it, and it reminds me of who I already am. You see that? For us, we look at it, and it should be a sign to us that I can trust God. God is faithful. When you look at the rainbow, it should stir inside of you that God is faithful and that I can trust him. Now, this should be good news for us because what marks every human relationship is broken trust, isn't it? I mean, every friendship you've ever had, every family relationship that you've experienced in this world, there's been broken relationship, broken trust that has happened in those relationships. A lot of hurt, a lot of pain that goes deep down inside of you that's really affected who you are today. A lot of what you are sitting in this seat today is a consequence of what has happened to you in relationships. These things have shaped you, they've formed you. They, you have broken hurt, you have broken pain that's deep inside of you. But the one relationship that you can always trust because this God is always faithful is this relationship with the God of the rainbow, of the God of this covenant with Noah. You can always trust him. And so whenever you look at this, it should be a sign to you of all the promises that God gives us in the scriptures. As we think about all the promises that he's given us, not just with Noah, not just with abraham that he's going to make a people not with just moses that he's going to free a people and they're going to be able to be a light to the rest of the world not just to david that there's going to be a descendant that comes from david that's ultimately going to win over the world he's going to pay our judgment for everything that we do like all these things should be a reminder to us that all the promises that we see throughout all the scriptures god keeps his promises He's faithful to us. He never fails us. When all of our other relationships tell us differently, we can look to this God and we can be reminded that he is true and he's faithful and he'll never let you down. That's what should stir inside of us as we look at this rainbow every single time. Now, a lot of times we're just like looking for the double rainbow, right? But we should look at it and we should be reminded, God is faithful to me. We, I mean, look, the proof is in the pudding, that we have sinned, but God still keeps his rainbow there. The flood has not come again. We look at this and it's like, okay, if God has done this, then all of his other promises, they're also true for me. So that's the first one. The second one, it represents God's expectations, all right? So look at verse 16 again. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember, that word is significant, but look at this, the permanent Covenant between God and all the living creatures on the earth. So, not only does it express to us, represent to us God's faithfulness, it also represents expectations. Permanent covenant. Look, what God is doing is He's not placing this bow in the sky and He doesn't come and say, If you hold up to your end of the bargain, if you do everything that I command of you, then I will not judge or I will not. Flood the earth again. Now God has placed His bow in the sky, His warrior's weapon in the sky. It's pointed away from us. God's judgment won't come towards us again in the coming of the flood. And look, it's not dictated by your actions. We have sinned. This world still struggles with sin. If you think back a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Genesis eight twenty one. God smells the fragrant aroma of the sacrifice. And here's what he says. I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. The sinful heart hasn't been removed from Noah. It still pertains to the life of Noah and all of his descendants. It's still taking place amongst us here and now. But the flood hasn't come again. So look, it's not dictated by your actions, but by God's actions. He's the one that carries the responsibility of all that he has made. Now, look, this should spur a couple of questions inside of us, all right? If you look at the faithfulness of God, and then if you look at the expectations of God that he heaps all the expectations on himself, and it's not on us, it should, we should have a couple of questions. The first one being this, well, what is God doing? Like, this doesn't benefit God at all. Why would God do this? Like, why would God make a covenant with Noah after he's flooded the earth, knowing that sin still resides in his heart, that he's gonna make this covenant that he will not destroy the earth again by the flood? Why? What is God doing here? Well, you have to step back and you have to think about the grand perspective of what is happening across the scriptures, all right? What God is doing here is he's creating the stage for the ultimate rescue plan. Do you see this? Like God is saying, I'm not going to judge the world again in this way because what I'm going to do is so good. What I'm going to do on this planet for these human beings is beyond their imagination. And so what you get after this is you get those string of covenants that I just listed off, and it leads ultimately to this new covenant. If you look at Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8 also responds to this. There's this new covenant that God's going to initiate with humanity, and it's beyond our imagination, y'all. Like Noah and all that follow him never could have thought or imagined without the intervening of God by speaking about what he's going to do amongst human history through the prophet Jeremiah and through the author of Hebrews 8. We never could have imagined what God was going to do on this grand stage that he starts with this covenant that he makes with Noah. And it's this, that God's going to give you a new heart. You see in Genesis chapter 8 that the inclination of the heart is towards evil all the time. We're gonna get a new heart that actually can obey the commands of God, like delights in in obeying the commands of God. This new covenant gives us a new community. God is winning for himself a family of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, that those people that look towards the name of Christ and place their faith and trust in him, they've been invited into this family. You get this new covenant family that's not just for this present life but for the one to come. Then you also see at the very end of these commitments, these covenants that God is making in this new covenant, that God forgives our sin. Here's what he says, I will never again remember their sins. This word "remembers" significant for us, isn't it? This word remember that it's not a mental recall But it's a covenant, a commitment that he makes. So when he says, I will never remember them, it's a commitment that I will not look at your sin anymore. And so if that's the first question, what is God doing? Well, he's working out this grand rescue plan. The second question should be, well, how does God do this? How in the world does God fulfill this new covenant? Well, we have to look at the signs of the covenant, all right? You have to look at the signs that God has given us of this new covenant, which are what? Communion and baptism. So what are these signs communicating to us? In communion, you get the body and the blood of Jesus. What is being communicated to us? I am laying my life down for you. Great sacrifice, right? Covenant relationship is not always mutually beneficial. Sometimes it requires great sacrifice. That's what God does for you. He lays down the great ultimate sacrifice Putting on human flesh himself, living perfectly, and then dying completely on your behalf. Then baptism. What is baptism signaling for us? The resurrection. We are united with Jesus in his life, death, and what? Resurrection. Jesus has, he's conquered Satan, sin, and death because he is not dead in a grave, we have a baptism that is a sign of this seal of the covenant that when we baptize each other, we are symboling what God has ultimately done for us in Jesus Christ, that he is not dead in a grave, but he's seated at the right hand of God. So all these promises are true for us because God has done everything for us. That's the promise So, you see the faithfulness of God in the rainbow. You see the expectations of God in the rainbow. And it has come to fruition in this new covenant. God is completely faithful. He's done everything that he said he was going to do from Genesis 3 onward, he's kept all of his promises. He's faithful. And then he's also the one that has done for us that we could never do for ourselves. All of the expectations are on him. What is the call for us is that we have faith and that we believe in everything Jesus has done for us. It's not a little bit of Jesus and then a little bit of obedience and then you get salvation. It's all of Jesus, nothing, complete salvation. That's the new covenant. That's what we step into when we trust Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. A lot of us, still look at this relationship as a contract and not as a covenant. A lot of us are living in this relationship as if it's a a contract and not a covenant. You are trying to, you're trying to carry and bear the expectations that God alone was intended to carry. All right. So here's what it looks like for us, right? We trust in Jesus, but then you live every single day life. And maybe I should just preach to you about me and then maybe you can relate. All right. So here's what I do. I like So I'm a pastor here. I, I moved here with six families. You know what I do? I put a lot of expectations on myself that those people with their work, with their relationships here, the school, I feel a heavy burden on my shoulders. Whenever you come into this place, I feel a burden for you when it comes to relationships and getting you connected here. I feel such a burden for you. When I think about my family, I think about my kids going into a school, I was in tears one day with my son because he was being bullied at school, he was the new kid at school, and I was just in tears because it's like, this is my fault. These are my expectations. These are the things that I have to carry for our family. I think about the financial responsibility for our church and for our staff. And like, how do we have the money to be able to do what we're called to do here? And so I have to go earn that money. I have to go find that money. These are all expectations that I put on myself. Look, we do this with our salvation too. It's like, yeah, Jesus has got me in, but he has a really high expectation for me for how I'm supposed to live. And so as I walk throughout this life, man, I better be on my game. Like, I have to be, have to be on all the time. I have to make sure that I'm following through with every commitment. I, I have to make sure that I am, like, this person of peace. And so I constantly just let people walk all over me, and I don't know what to do. And I, 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 this, I, this is just what it must be to be a Christian. And then like, man, I have to obey, and so, like, these things, it feels like drudgery, and so I move forward, and I try to live in God's commands, what Jesus has called for me, and so I try to serve in the church, and I try to give sacrificially to the church, and so I try to do all these things. Hopefully, God will be okay with me, and then, you know, I try to be a really good neighbor with all those people that live around me, and so I'm constantly, like, man, if somebody's, like, left, if there's a box on the front porch, I try to go be the one that gets the box and bring it into the house so it doesn't get stolen. It's, like, I'm a great neighbor, right? So I give it back whenever they come home. Or man, like somebody, I I noticed my neighbor, it's an old lady, she can't go mow her lawn. And so, man, I'm gonna be the one that like, God doesn't need my good works, but my neighbor does. And so I'm gonna go do this thing. But ultimately in your heart, you're saying like, man, hopefully God's okay with me if I go do these things. And so here's what happens. Like you get these expectations that you're putting on yourself and it's like a heavy burden. So you're like slowly as you're walking through life, feels like you're kind of like, crunched down and you're walking and then more and more expectations you get more responsibilities in this life and like you get down to one knee and it's like man I feel all these weight I feel all these expectations but look it's because you are trying to carry another side of the bargain of this covenant relationship you are not intended to so here's what God does you're on that knee God's coming it's like I'm gonna I'm just gonna take this for you And he like puts it on himself. And what we should feel in this covenant relationship is that we are free. You're free of expectation and that you get to walk freely. What does Jesus say in Matthew 11? All you who are weary and burdened and heavy rest, come to me and I'll provide you what? I'll give you rest. Look, the covenant relationship we step into isn't more expectations, more weight, more responsibility that God has invited us into, it's a fresh breath of air. (sighs) That's what you feel in this covenant relationship with God. So look, are you ready to not just taste of it, are you ready to live in it? This is God's invitation to you. God's invitation is, I have established this new covenant. I will give you a heart of flesh. You will delight in obeying me because you know that life and joy and purpose and meaning will be found whenever you follow in obedience of me. I will not remember your sins anymore. The things that you lose sleep over about what has happened in your past, God has I have committed myself to not remember that anymore. It's been paid. It's done. It's finished. I'm giving you a people that you can live and walk in this world together, that can carry the difficulties and the challenges, that can weep with you when you need to weep, that can rejoice when, with you whenever it's time to rejoice, I've invited you into a family, a covenant family that can never be ripped away from you. Some of you come from broken homes and it's like, I just never can trust that there's going to be a relationship that lasts. You have eternal relationships that you've been invited into because of the work that God has done. So here's two responses. All right, if you you really taste of this and you experience it, here's two responses. God, thank you. God, thank you. You've done for me what I could never have done for myself. What I get to experience because of the work that you've done since the very beginning, that climax in the work of Jesus. I get to experience this. I get to live with you here now. I have the coming Jesus, that new heavens, new earth. I get to live with you forever. Thank you, God. And then secondly, God, help me. God, help me. Help me live in this new covenant relationship. This life of bearing expectations that I was not created or intended to carry, Lord, please help me. Please help me to live without carrying those burdens. Let me trust you with the expectations that you've put on your shoulders and may I taste of this new covenant relationship that I experience rest and freedom and joy. That's God's invitation to you here tonight. It's beautiful. It's something that we see from the very beginning. Genesis chapter nine, God's been working this through the scriptures from the very beginning of time, and now's the time for you to taste of it. Will you go do it this week? Let's pray.